1: Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer.
2: Welcome. Today, I am talking with Captain Peter Wilcox of Greenpeace and his adventures in protecting the future of our planet. Uh... Peter has a new book out called Greenpeace Captain. Hello, Peter. Good afternoon. Hi. So I understand you're calling in from your home in Islesboro. How is life up there on the coast of Maine? Oh, it's just great this summer. It's been absolutely beautiful. Uh, Islesboro is about the same size as as Manhattan, but has a year-round population of 600, It's about three miles off the coast. We have ferry service, and it's just a wonderful place. It's a great refuge, a place to go to and settle back, I guess. Yep. Uh, So your book is just gripping. I I read it, you know, and it was just, I had to read it cover to cover, but you're so well put together. And it spoke to me at many different levels because, you know, I was really struck by how parallel our life voyages have been Because we're both sailors, and we both are born the same year, and um, at one point, you're talking about sailing the Regina Maris, on the Regina Maris, and you're with Andy Chase, and within months of that time period, um, I was probably just a bit behind you, I was the assistant scientist working on a sailing research vessel westward for Sea Education Association with Andy's brother, Carl Chase. So and then I remember seeing you guys bring the Clearwater into Boston Harbor, right up alongside Columbus Park, and and you were saying that yeah, you were the guy, you were the captain of that. Yeah, that was on our way up to Seabrook to protest the nuclear power plant that was happening, in, I guess 1977 or something like that. Yeah, part of the Clamshell Alliance and all that, and and Bravo. That plant never got built. Well, I guess Seabrook did get built, but uh, some other ones didn't get built. Um, yeah, Shoreham so, got stopped in the middle. That was the one down on Long Island. Oh, that was the one, yeah. And when we had one out in Montague, they were talking about in, in western Massachusetts, that uh, they went out and chopped, Sam Lovejoy went out and chopped down the weather tower and, and uh, big civil disobedience and um, for many reasons. The power plants haven't been built. Um, but bravo. So <laughs> I, I love it in the story where you start out as just a young lad you're sailing off the, you know, on Long Island um, with your family, and uh, your progressive parents have got you have got you know what a sign to say don't build the power plant or something. Yeah, I can't remember what the sign said, but uh, no, no. But just tell us about the, the boat and the family uh, and all they've, that. They've yeah, they built a uh, a coal-fired power plant about well less than a mile from our home, and uh, we in 20 or 30 other families went out there in small boats and had a sail in to protest the plant. It didn't do much good, but I I think they probably spent a few extra dollars putting up uh, better-than-average dust precipitators so that we never saw much pollution coming out of the plant. But now the plant was converted to uh, fuel oil a few years later, and now many years later... It's, uh, it's offline and probably going to be torn down soon. That is fabulous. You outlived the plant. Yeah, that's and, right. And you're still breathing. You know? <laughs> you're <not laughs> totally lungs coated with uh, soot and stuff. Um, so then you successfully, as I say, walked the plank from this little one-design boat, the little flotilla of boats that were out there uh, in Long Island, and to become captain of Greenpeace's biggest vessels. And in your book, Greenpeace Captain, you see more action than does Horatio Hornblower, you know, in any of his books. But you know, let's skip ahead a few years to 1985, and a few chapters ahead to the Marshall Islands, because um, we just don't have time to go into all the exploits. This is why you got to go out and buy the book. This is worth buying the book because there's so many things that happen there that we're not going to get to today. Uh, but tell us why Greenpeace was interested in the Marshall Islands. Well, 1985 was our year of protesting nuclear testing in the Pacific. Uh, It was being done in two places, and one was in the Marshall Islands, and one was in French Polynesia. Now, the U.S. had started testing in the Marshalls in 1948, shortly after World War II, and for those tests, the people of Rongelap Atoll were moved off their island, so they'd be out of the fallout range of Bikini Atoll, where they were testing the bombs. Then in 1955, the U.S. exploded what was the biggest hydrogen bomb test we've ever done an atmospheric test of. It was a 1,000 times more powerful than the bombs that landed on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And for that test, the people of Rongelap were left on their island because the powers that be made the very conscious decision that they wanted to experiment on a group of people to see how they would be affected by the radioactive fallout from a hydrogen bomb.
0: Good grief
2: uh, yep, it was absolutely intentional there's no question about it. There was no sudden wind shift, as the military claimed at the time. Uh, and within two or three days, the people were so sick they realized that they were going to have to move them off or they would all die. Um, but three years later, because they wanted to continue this test on a controlled population, they moved them back on. And their radiation levels went up all over again. Now, 100% of all the people that were on the island that were caught in the fallout uh, got thyroid cancer. Mind you, this bomb, which was a 20-megaton bomb, uh, is of a similar size to the multiple warheads used in an intercontinental ballistic missile. that The missiles that have six or eight warheads, are all about 20 megaton size. And this one bomb, which was dropped approximately the distance from Hartford to New York City, at 10 o'clock in the morning, the people in the Marshall Islands could hear the explosion and feel the heat from the bomb from 160 miles away to give you some idea of the immense power of these things. Well, a couple people died of leukemia over the years, uh, adults were affected by premature aging, and children were born deformed and retarded. Not all of them, of course, but a, a noticeable percent of the population. And the p- p- part of the population that suffered the worst were women and their reproductive health. Many, many women had six, seven, eight miscarriages. Women had jellyfish babies, which are just what they sound like. Uh, fetuses that live only for half an hour outside the room that were completely unformed without bones. And after a generation of this, uh, in 1980, the people of Rongelap asked their own government and the U.S. government to move them. The U.S. government had just spent $100 million, which was some money at the time, trying it wasted in a wasted effort to clean up Bikini Atoll and didn't want to go through the same thing again at Ronglap, so they said it was absolutely not necessary. But five years <laughs> later, not when Greenpeace came to the Marshall Islands, the people asked us to move them, so we did. And we moved them about 120 miles across the ocean to uh, part of Kwajalein Atoll that was outside the fallout range from the hydrogen bomb test. It was, um, it was of course, devastating to learn what my government had done. Uh, and an amazing experience to move these people. Uh, they were numbering about 350 at the time. And the first Rainbow Warrior was just a small 150-foot boat that we had just put a sail rig on. Uh, and it was quite an amazing deal. We did not take any of their livestock, which they wanted to leave on Rongolap, and we didn't take the concrete, uh, cinder block church, uh, but we took just about everything else, all their building materials of their houses, which was plywood, corrugated roofing, two-by-fours. We loaded that all on as deck cargo and then threw the people on top of that, and off we went in about four trips. Um, From there, we went down to New Zealand to prepare to go to French Polynesia, and that's, of course, when the French bomb the Rainbow Warrior, killing our crew member, Fernando Pereira, and uh, essentially ending the life of the first Rainbow Warrior. Yeah, um, a little more information about that. That's pretty startling, what you just said. Yeah, the, it, it was certainly something we were completely unprepared for, that we had no warning about. The French uh, military, uh, they had upwards of 15 or so agents in New Zealand operating at the time, including having infiltrated the Greenpeace office in Auckland, um, didn't want Greenpeace to take a big boat to French Polynesia. We had been there with a small boat, the Vega, under the skippering of David McTaggart years before that. But now we were <laughs> prepared to take one of our bigger boats, and they were just, just, just didn't want this to happen. Of course, they didn't expect to get caught red-handed, which is essentially what happened. The divers were seen leaving the ship, um, str- throwing away the outboard motor on the inflatable and dragging the inflatable halfway up the beach and jumping into a waiting camper van, and the people at the local yacht club took down the number of it, assuming it was some kids that had stolen a van. Probably. The agents were arrested about two days later trying to leave from the airport. Um, they were questioned all day. They were pretending to be a Swiss couple and had fake passports. But the New Zealand police couldn't, you know, they smelled a rat, but they couldn't get them to admit to anything. So they put them in a hotel room that night and said, please use the telephone order room service and we're going to take you to the airplane in the morning. We're very sorry for having detained you. Well, the agents got on the telephone and called up DSEG headquarters in Paris, and that was the end of the story. Uh, (laughs) Months later had to admit (laughs) that they, they had, in fact, authorized the bombing and it had been authorized by... Then President Mitterand, um, the absolute top of top of the government, uh, France has never apologized for that bombing either to us or for killing Fernando Pereira. Um, but we're we're not waiting for that anymore. That's just incredible. I mean, there you were tied up to the wharf in New Zealand, and suddenly you were thinking and hearing blast noise. And just that's stuff. just about what it was. I, I felt the boat shake at quarter or twelve at night, and it, it felt like we had been involved with a collision at sea. I looked out of my forward porthole and could see the lights of the dock, so I assumed it wasn't my fault. And about 45 seconds later when I got to the engine room, because I could hear the generators had gone off and things weren't sounding right, the water was about uh, three feet from the main deck level that I was standing on. Right. Uh, yep. Yeah, I mean, the first bomb blew a six-by-seven-foot hole right in the side of the hull like, that you could drive a Volkswagen through. And then, uh, 45 seconds or so after the first bomb, the second bomb went off, and that was the one that had trapped Fernando Pereira in his cabin, wrenched his door shut so he couldn't get out, and he drowned. Uh, they the absolutely destroyed the boat. Yep. They could have done it with one-tenth of the explosives. But they just, I think they didn't really care. They didn't care if they killed the whole crew or, or how many people. Um, and, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite this surprising incident. Yeah, I would never be the same after that, I think. That's a pretty, uh, yeah, surprising incident. Good grief. Um, Peter, this is just stunning. And I'm talking with Peter Wilcox about his book, Green Peace Captain, And we're going to take a short break and be right back after this.
0: Streaming
1: live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
0: On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org i
1: dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science we're making it easier to listen to the voice america talk radio network live wherever you go on iphone blackberry or android download it from the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market Listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 866 472 5788 Again, that's 866 472 5788 You can also send an email to Rob at Oceanriver.org. Now back to Dr. Rob Moyer.
2: Hey, hi. We're talking with Peter Wilcox. And he is the captain. He's a captain for Greenpeace. And he's got a book out called Greenpeace Captain. It's a phenomenal read. And unfortunately, we have limited time to talk to him. So we're just going to cherry pick a few of the actions that they are engaged in that he describes in the book. And we were just talking about events back in 1985 or thereabouts. Now we're going to move forward to about 15 years to um, when you're getting ready to start off your, um, the Toxic Free Asia Tour. And uh, Peter, I understand that um, the, the boat um, had some um, that, that you're going to take on this. But tell us about the boat that, that Greenpeace used for that action. Well, this was the second Rainbow Warrior. After the first one had been blown up by the French, we acquired a slightly larger North Sea trawler. Um, and converted it to sail. Uh, North Sea Trawlers are terrifically seaworthy boats. You can take them anywhere and do just about anything. And it's what we had used before. So we got a a bigger one and um, and put it into the sail rig. Now, the Indo-Sail Rig was designed by Peter Schensler of Hamburg, Germany. It's got standing horizontal gaffs. It looks, uh, as my friend Annie Chase said, it might look a little Mickey Mouse, But it's a very um, uh, efficient, easy-to-sail rig. It's way better than the hull that we put it on. Um, The standing horizontal gas means that the sails rolled up behind the mast in front of them, and it had a little jib on a triangular arrangement that looked much like a model sailboat and also very easy to control. The project was done, the reason it was called Indosail was because it was a foreign foreign uh, uh, foreign project from Germany to Indonesia uh, to, to be a, a sailing rig that could be built and handled in Indonesia and in fact they built a 65 meter uh, cargo ship that did very very well with just a little horsepower coupled into the shaft um, so it was a great rig I really liked it, it was, it was fantastic and that's what we had, the Rainbow Warrior at that time was 182 feet, I believe, um, and had bunks on board for about 30 or 32, which the first boat had, I think, bunks for 24. So it was a bit bigger. It was sort of an, an example of how Greenpeace at the time was getting bigger. When I started in Greenpeace in 1981, there were 200 people, and you knew pretty much everybody that was doing everything, and it's grown quite a bit larger now. When I started... When we go out to campaign, we'd have one campaigner on board that would come along, and now we generally have teams of 8, 10, or 12 campaigners on board doing all the different things that they do. So we've we've been evolving into slightly bigger ships and bigger ships. But in 2000, we were doing the Toxics Free Asia Tour because we were concerned about the amount of toxic waste that was being funneled from first-world countries to third-world countries. Uh, Third world countries, of course, were not set up at all to handle it, but they would take the cash that came with it, um, and it was creating a mess. The example Hmm. we chose in the Philippines to illustrate was what the U.S. had done with their bases. I'm sure everybody knows that the U.S. for many years had bases in the Philippines, both Subic Naval Base and Clark Air Force Base. And their habit during the last 20 or 30 years before that had been to take their Toxic waste, put it into 55 gallon drums and line it in a six foot trench. Well, this had made the bases so toxic that the dust was toxic, the water was toxic, and even though the U.S. knew completely the state of these things, the EPA had done a, a survey of them. When the lease on the bases ran out in the late 1980s, the U.S. just locked the door and left, left this mess there. About 1990, Mount, and I always have a hard time saying this, Mount Pinatobo, a uh, volcano in the Philippines exploded, and some of the towns around it were lost as a result. Well, because these bases had housing for thousands of people on them, the people just moved on to the bases, at which, at which point they started getting sick, Um uh, the young girl who uh, was born on the base in about nineteen ninety four um, came on board the Rainbow Warrior while we were in Manila. She had made up the poster. she was She was suffering from a form of cancer. Uh, she had gotten it from on the base. There was no question of this. And uh, we had invited her and a number of her friends out to the boat to see and, and have some fun on board for the afternoon. She had been looking forward to this for months and months and, and died on board during the during the afternoon. Um, yeah, that's incredible the way you tell that in the story. You yeah, know, it's it like was, it was, uh, and then the next day. Like, wow. Yep, it yeah. was hard hard to deal with. I saw her mother leaving the ship with the, the child sleeping. I thought the child sleeping under a blanket didn't realize she had died. Uh, I came on board, and the crew was all very upset and walking around. And, but we had decided to, to take a transformer from the base. It said, property, U.S. government. It had a number on it from the Environmental Protection Agency, an 800 number that said, call this number, which, of course, had been disconnected by this time, if you have any questions. And this transformer was leaking PCB oil into the ground at a uh, scrapyard right outside the base. So we took the transformer, put it into a small shipping container, dug up a lot of the dirt around the transformer, put it in barrels and sealed them, and two days later uh, took the container with a forklift in downtown Manila and shoved it up against the gates of the U.S. Embassy and demanded they take it back because it said property of U.S. government all over it. The U.S., of course, didn't want to admit that they have left a, a toxic legacy in the Philippines. They wanted nothing to do with us. We were all subsequently arrested. And after being interviewed for an hour or so at the police station in Manila, the investigator's final words to me was that we should be thanking you, not arresting you. Um, because of that action and the publicity it received, it was the first time that the Philippine Senate had ever, ever officially requested the U.S. government to clean up the bases, which, of course, never happened, but it should have happened. I mean, you can't sweep your dirt under a rug and just walk away and leave it there. That's not good housekeeping. And uh, that, was, that was just one of the things we did on that toxic Free Asia Tour, but it, it should, it's a good example of why we do actions. Um, The primary idea of an action is public education, let people know something is going on. The best action, of course, doesn't require a caption underneath a picture. It's easily explainable. And one of the best we ever ever did, of course, was to take the inflatable out in front of the harpoon gun of the whaling ship uh, Mm -hmm. and get in between the harpoon gun and the whale. That one picture just said it all. Uh, it's been it's been hard to duplicate that action over the years, but we've we've come close, um, and that's that's why we do them. They're just they're a necessary part of the over uh, the many things we do, from you know scientific research to lobbying to helping write laws. Uh, it, it, you know, in the whole scheme of things, that Greenpeace does to, to try and get things in a little bit better shape. Well, there's a lot of people writing laws and stuff, but there are a few people doing the actions of Greenpeace. It's just commendable. But you, you skipped over the part of being captain of a forklift in the Philippines. Oh, I was so driving a forklift. <laughs> yeah, I got arrested for uh, driving a forklift without an action. Why were you driving a forklift? A main street and for littering. And I thought yeah. the last the last charge was was funny as heck. Um, and uh, you know, in fact, by the end of the day, all the charges had been dropped, and we walked out of the police station. But yeah, I, I initially got arrested for those things plus littering. I thought that was hilarious. So it was you were moving the tanks to be in front of the uh, of the state of uh, the U.S. place. Or something. It's a ten foot shipping container up against the gates of the U.S. embassy, and uh, uh, the there's actually a very funny picture in the book of a security guard, Filipino security guard, pushing on the. Uh, container, uh, shipping container, the other way as I'm pushing it up against the gates of the embassy. So he's he's pushing it against a rather large forklift. And it's a very funny picture. But we put it up against the gates. And of course, the the U.S. embassy didn't want to know anything about it. No, no. But what a wonderful image of the, the Philippine person, you know, pushing back against this huge crate and then the big forklift with uh, Captain Wilcox there at the helm. <laughs> yeah, that was. I, I volunteered to drive the forklift. I so much wanted to do that. I mean, the other <laughs> thing about actions that we do is, you know, they help us. They give us energy. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I firmly believe that people want to be able to contribute to the society they live in in a meaningful way, and actions is one of the ways we do it. Um, and, uh, so, you know, doing actions gives us energy. If you ever want to see a, an unhappy Greenpeace crew come to a ship that just did 25 open days and no actions and everybody's just dragging their knuckles on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> no more tour guides. We want to be, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, so now we come to, uh, the biggest episode of all was, when, uh, you you know, back in, well, in 2013, you were to captain the Greenpeace ship Arctic Sunrise, and you took it around Scandinavia up into the Barents Sea above the Arctic Circle, far into Russian and Siberian waters. Not the most hospitable place in the world on many levels. What were you guys thinking, and why were you there? Well, it's real easy. Um, As I'm sure you know, the biggest contribution we can make towards the planet, towards resisting climate change and global warming, is we must leave the fossil fuels in the ground. Uh, Um, And Russia, which has an oil industry, which routinely, now this is, Rob, this is important, the Russian oil industry routinely spills five times the amount that British petroleum spills spilled in the Gulf of Mexico. They routinely spill that every year. Oh, my gosh, five, five times. I mean, it's the a huge amount of rotting yeah. infrastructure, rotting pipes, lack of maintenance. It, it's just a, um, <laughs> a terrible show. And we're convinced, absolutely convinced, and we know that the Russians don't have any technique for cleaning up an oil spill in the ice. Now, they put a huge rig... And in relatively shallow water, it's only about 110 or something feet, and it has steel going all the way down to the sides, and they filled it up with stone so that it hopefully won't move when the ice pushes against it. But in our opinion, it's just a matter of time until something bad happens. And when you couple this with the fact, we know, scientists will tell us, every ounce or every ton, whatever, gallon of fuel oil we burn, climate change is going to get worse. And you, I don't have to tell you the problems we're having from climate change already. Now, I did my first whaling action in Russia in 1983. In 1995, we caught them dumping radioactive waste uh, into the sea of Japan, less than 100 miles from the Japanese fishing fleet. And, we had, I thought we had a pretty good idea of what to expect in Russia. We had been up the year before um, to the same rig and climbed up the side and tied a banner to it and taken pictures and go away, and it was no big deal. This year, uh, or 2013, it was suddenly a very big deal, and when we got there... Uh, Immediately they started shooting machine guns, not at us, but very, very close to us. So there are pictures of the machine gun bullets coming two or three feet away from an inflatable and leaving, leaving you know, you can see the water jumping from the bullets. Uh, the couple teams in Coast Guard boats started pulling on the ropes of our climbers and pulling them way out from the side of the rig and letting them smash back into the rigs where they either fall down into the sea or get seriously injured. I mean, the level of aggression, other Coast Guard guys, Russian Coast Guard guys, started taking big knives and cutting up our inflatables. It was something we were completely unprepared for. So our two climbers got arrested, and we spent the day circling the rig at at a three-mile distance. Mind you now, this is in international waters, and that's an important part. Nobody would question the right of the... Russians to drill for oil inside their economic exclusion zone. Uh, But they also, that's not their territorial sea. It's outside the 12-mile limit. So they don't have the rights to do anything to us. So the next day, 30 hours after the action, they boarded us by helicopter. Men rappelled down some ropes, took over, pushed all the crew into a couple different cabins and searched them and kept me on the bridge. It was funny, the... The Russian special forces then stole everybody's booze and proceeded to drink it that night, which was a little scary for some because then we had these 15 Russian soldiers charging around the boat, all completely drunk, and uh, and the next morning all hungover. Uh, but they were armed when they were drunk too. They yeah, were they carrying had machine guns. Pyro. But they, yeah, minor know, detail. Yes, yeah. you know it, the whole incident to me felt a little bit like another day at the office because we have been through this before. <laughs> What was a surprise was when they towed us into Murmansk four days later, normally, and this has happened three times, three or four times to us before in the Russian Arctic, they tow you into Murmansk, you fill out papers for a few days, they get mad at you, and then you leave. This time we got there, and they said, no, well, we're going to charge you with piracy. It's 10 to 15 years in jail, and that's in a judicial system where... 99.99% of all people put into detention are found guilty at trial. Trial is pretty much of a rubber stamp and a fait accompli. So even though as we sat in jail for two months, I didn't really believe we were going to spend 10 or 15 years in Russia, it was a nervous time. Nervous enough so that I lost 20 pounds in jail, which I wish I could have kept off, but and that was wasn't from lack of food; it was just from the tension of of what we were under. Uh, it was a month before I was able to call home and talk to my wife, or actually meet with a, my own lawyer. So you, we really didn't have any idea of what was going on. But I just I felt all along that with Sochi coming up, they would not want us in jail during the the Sochi Olympics. And in fact, that was true. I think whoever ordered our arrest back in September, figured they'd keep us locked up for a couple months and then throw us out of the country. We were, under, we were in jail for two months and under city arrest in St. Petersburg, which is one of the most beautiful cities in the world, um, for another month and got home just before New Year's. And it was quite, you know, I had never been in jail for more than overnight before that in my Greenpeace career. I'd been arrested many times. But it was it was quite a thrilling ordeal. Yes, it was. Uh, Peter, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back, and we can talk some more about life in the Gulag or whatever you call that place you were locked up into. Um, So, I'm talking to Peter Wilcox. We'll be right back after this break.
1: dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science.
0: On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, Please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate the number four oceans.org. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN.
1: listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at one 472 5788 Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. I'm talking with Peter Wilcox, the captain for
2: Greenpeace, and that's the name of his book, Greenpeace Captain, and it is a remarkable, thrilling read, and uh, Peter, you just got us home from um, Russia, and, um, Um, you know, a lesser person would hang up their shingle and and write a book about it, but uh, you did something more, right? What happened next? Well, I was home for a couple months, and I rejoined the Rainbow Warrior, sailed across the ocean to Rotterdam, where we met the first load of oil coming from the rig that we had had the action on back in September, uh, and did an action in Rotterdam where we kept them off the dock for an hour or so. It was a huge action with a couple hundred Greenpeace people involved, not just the Rainbow Warrior, but another ship and, and many, many people. Um, you know, and as a result of that action, I might add that the Dutch legislature debated not allowing uh, Russian oil from the Arctic into into Netherlands at all. Now, they decided to, but I thought it was a very good sign that they at least debated. I mean, everybody yeah. should know that... that Burning fossil fuels is just something we can't afford to do anymore. We've got to stop it just as soon as, as possible. And so to allow Russia to, to you know, their, their oil fields in Siberia are drying up. They're convinced that their economic stability is going to come from pumping oil out of the Arctic. But I think that's just a very, very poor plan. So that was, that was exciting to do, though. I was back in jail again that night because we got arrested by the Dutch police, but it was a whole different feeling from being arrested in Russia. They're a bit nicer to you. Yeah, very much nicer. And, <laughs> uh, and there wasn't, wasn't really any worry about it, but they had to go through the motions. Peter, tell us about the complexity of a Greenpeace action and preventing a boat from docking. I mean, it's not just your big boat blocking the boat. I was intrigued by the important role that soft kayaks would play, or soft little soft one, one or two people boats would play in this. Well, you just what you do is you throw everything at it that you have. Uh, we managed to get the Rainbow Warrior in between the Russian tanker and the dock. That stopped them for a while. We had people all over the dock. We actually had a couple ultralights in the air. We had swimmers in the water, making it hard for them to to move the tanker into the dock. And a combination of everything makes it really hard for the police to deal with. Now, the police, you know, they take this... It's it's not the most tense situation for them because they know with Greenpeace protesters, there's absolutely no violence involved at all. And another... So there's that. And the other big part of Greenpeace actions is that we do not do any property damage to anybody but ourselves. So you get brownie points if you can smash your boat up and get it caught in between a ship and a dock. But we absolutely do not cause any damage to the uh, intended of the action. That's, you know, that'll get you thrown out of Greenpeace and has gotten people thrown out of Greenpeace that, that even come close to crossing that line. So, yeah, that that's really clear in your book, how the, the lengths you go to. You know, there's one part where you're putting uh, bars into the anchor chain. And so you have to, dis- right, there's a way to design those so it won't hurt something. That's right, yep. And, uh, uh, you know, you can stop a boat, but you can't, you can't endanger it at all. Um, and you can't, you can't cause any property damage to it. So th- those things, you know, <laughs> I tell you, when you're sitting in jail and everybody's mad at you, you're pretty glad for those things because it uh, it reduces the charges somewhat. Right. Well, you mean not having damaged anything and, and being... Exactly, homeless. or not having done anything oh, yeah. for your own profit. Uh, yeah, no, you're very good about working with the inf- law enforcement people, and there are lots of tales where the law enforcement are putting the screws to you legally and then cheering for you behind your back or behind someone's back or something. That's right. Yep. That, that, it, it happens. I mean, cops, cops don't have to worry about green piecers. They know that right. um, nobody's even going to push them or, you know, somebody may run away but, but not push them. So those, right. things, those things are very helpful, and they're a huge part of our actions. All of our activists have to go through nonviolence training and understand the concept very well before they get out and get to do an action. Yeah, you can't have someone going rogue or it'll ruin the whole reputation of Greenpeace. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So that so, was, um, you know, as as I said, the, it felt good to do a blockade of the Russian tanker because it's just so critically important that we not burn any more fossil fuels than we, than we possibly can. Anything we can do today is less than we're going to have to do in the future. Meaning... That, you know, the, that, the, yeah. the mitigating actions we take today, I mean, it's been absolutely wonderful that countries like Scotland, Norway, and Denmark have all had days in the last year where all their energy needs were met by renewable resources. They put up huge windmill farms. We've really, in the United States, been so behind the times, if you will, in terms of offshore wind farms. Now we finally have... Four foundations for windmills off Block Island. Four, but when I when I leave Amsterdam for a trip on one of the Greenpeace boats, I can look one direction and see 150 windmills. Look another direction and see 100 windmills, and that's just one small wind farm in the North Sea. Um, yeah. Theoretically, I was- it's best that all the North Sea countries will get all their energy needs met by wind on the North Sea. Uh, that's fabulous. And it's you know we can't switch fast enough. No, but I was at Deep Water in Providence, Rhode Island for a meeting uh, a few weeks ago, and all these guys were running out grinning, and I thought, was it something I said? And it was no. The blades had come in by ship from, I guess they were made in Denmark, and the ship was commanded by Germans. But this enormous, you know, because those blades are big for these uh, windmills that are going. Sure. Are, in. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's so exciting to see that you know, all the blades are here now, and so the, the hope is to uh, get those, the stanchions, like you said, were put up, you know, last summer, and now they, you know, I guess, I don't know if it's going to be operational in the fall or when, but uh, it's beginning, to, the tides begin to turn on building windmills here, so it's not too... We're way behind totally. what other countries have done. And yeah. being one of the largest CO2 producers in the world, we've We've, it's imperative that we make better efforts. And opening up new sections of the ocean for more oil drilling is just suicidal. I mean, yeah. we know that climate change has caused people to die in Africa from the droughts. I mean, this is not some far-off problem nope, that nope. may affect our children. It's affecting us now. I can remember being out in Australia three years ago and talking to scientists there at the Great Barrier Reef, and they suggested that within 15 to 20 years the ocean would be too warm and acidic for corals to grow. Well, guess what? Because of an El Nino year, now massive sections of the northern part of the reef have been bleached out and are dying. Now, that's three years later, not 15 or 20 years. I mean, this is a problem that's confronting us now. And we can't turn away from it. We can't stick our heads in the ground and pretend it doesn't exist. And the fact that Exxon and really all the oil companies have known this for 50 or 60 years, I think is criminal. And I yeah. think that those guys ought to stand and answer for it, because they've lied to us intentionally. And, and they, should, they, should, they should be made to pay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that uh, Greenpeace is not resting on its laurels. What's your next expedition? Well, um, you know, you're going to go back to sea. You're not just going to stay at Islesboro. There, yeah, right? I, I'm you're no good in an office, uh, Rob. <laughs> <It's>, even at <laughs> Islesboro, a I don't know. Uh, of <laughs> the coast of Maine is also attractive. But. Yeah. Uh, no, I'll <laughs> so, be so, heading uh, out to rejoin the Rainbow Warrior. That's the, the one Greenpeace boat with sails, which gives us the chance to put our money where our mouth is. <laughs> uh, and we'll be going to Lebanon, Turkey, Tunisia, Morocco, Uh, promoting climate, doing climate change work, Turkey has plans uh, to build uh, many, many coal-fired power plants. And as you know, coal is the absolute worst fuel we can use in terms of producing energy that produces the most CO2. I mean, using coal is just, that's Neanderthal knuckle-dragging stuff. There's absolutely no excuse for doing that at all, especially in a place like Turkey, which has such ample solar and wind power. Um, so yeah, we'll be going there we were there, we were in Turkey three years ago and had absolutely a great time with the young activists there we did an action on a coal-fired power plant and um, it was uh, it was a wonderful time I'm looking forward to going back yeah, such good people yep and where else are you going besides Turkey? well, as I said Lebanon, Turkey, Tunisia, Morocco and Lebanon, Tunisia, Morocco, I haven't been to before. So that's, a, that's kind of a thrill for me to go someplace new. And I'm sure, as in all Greenpeace campaigns, I'll learn a lot and meet people and, and see what's going on. It should be really interesting. And from there, I, I get off the boat in mid-December. We'll sail over to Mexico and start a campaign there. I'm not quite sure what that one's focused at yet. So when you're going into Tunisia, Lebanon, and uh, Morocco, uh, does Greenpeace go ahead to to find and communicate with local groups? or Oh, yeah, a- absolutely. We've been doing it yeah. for as long as I've been a part. I mean, you go back to the Peruvian whale campaign in 1982, and we had had people down there the year before. Uh, Making friends and meeting other environmental groups and getting us tied into the local situation. So we, when we went down to Peru, and this was in 1982, we really weren't strangers. We had a basis, a reason for being there. <laughs> By the way, Peru was the other one of the other places I've been charged with piracy for because we we camped out on board of a Japanese whaling ship for a day, preventing it from going hmm. out to sea. And uh, but again. Um, the charges were dropped, <laughs> thankfully, because Peru's government didn't want that. to go to jail. Yeah, and the sad thing was that piracy has a lot graver consequences than just uh, trespassing does, I guess. Yeah, but I, that was a mistake to get charged with piracy down there. That was we hadn't quite done our homework well enough. I had I had told the guys I wanted to meet with a lawyer in Lima, and I was assured it would happen, but somehow it didn't quite. So we made a mistake, but it it ended up being all right. I mean, um, you know, this is, I say mostly now I keep on doing this for, for my daughters who are uh, 21 and 20, almost 25. I want them to have some kind of planet to grow up on, and I want them to feel comfortable enough about what's happening to have children of their own. And... um I guess, you know, I'm confronted with this stuff all the time, so I see what's happening, but it's really a critical problem for all of our kids, yours and mine. The biggest problems they're going to face in their lifetime is climate change and what it means for them. It's going to be an issue they're going to have to address the whole time. It's not going to go away. And so, you're telling how to do that. So important that the more, more we do now is the less we're going to have to do later. Yes, and you're establishing techniques and actions that people can take forever, just like you learned actions back in the 60s. Here you are applying them to climate change, and similarly, you know, your daughters um, are older than you were when you went to, you know, um, to the South, to those civil rights movement stuff, and so they... They've got a good teacher, and and that's a great responsibility for all of us is to pass forward um, these kinds of taking responsible action and demonstrating, as you said so eloquently, that actions can be done without violence, without harming people, without harming uh, properties. Well, you you know, Rob, when you're fighting a war, you kill people. That's how you win. But if you're trying to change people's minds, and that's what we're trying to do, then violence Uh. Violence isn't the ticket. Violence does no. not change anybody's mind. It just hurts them. So if you're trying yeah, to change it. people's minds, violence is not the answer. And, yeah, it, and, I, and I suppose I learned comments. that lesson so well in the civil rights movement. And uh I'm so glad that Greenpeace has adopted has always had that philosophy. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's I didn't expect to find that. I didn't expect to find um, such mirroring of, you know, Martin Luther King's preachings in the—I don't know why not. I guess because we get caught up in the, um, in the extent of the actions, you know. I mean, it was just—to put yourself between a harpoon and a whale is just uh, a terrifying thing to do, and, and that was really a signature uh, motion that uh, Greenpeace did, and uh, congratulations Um, But, yes, I'm getting off a message here. Uh, uh, So tell us again. um, Yeah, so we're running out of time. So, um, uh, Peter, what are some concluding insights that you'd like to leave us with? Well, we've all got to work as hard as we can to mitigate the effects that climate change is going to produce. It's everybody's job, and everybody can do something. You don't have to take it to the extent I do. But I'm absolutely convinced that it will make everybody happier if they can contribute in some meaningful way to the success of our society. This is a message that comes through loud and clear in Sebastian Younger's new book, Tribe, which I think is just an amazing book, and I would recommend to everybody. But everybody wants to find a way to contribute, and you don't have to be an environmental <laughs> extremist. You don't have to work <laughs> for Greenpeace. You have to do something, and I think everybody should be aware that climate change is going to be the massive problem we're going to be dealing with for the rest of our lives. Yes, and the other part is to do something and include other people, you know, include the whole tribe in in what you're doing. Um, Very well said, Peter. Thank you, thank you. Um, My guest has been Peter Wilcox, and he is the author of Greenpeace Captain, um, my adventures in protecting the future of our planet i highly recommend this book that you run out and pick it up and leave it around so that you know your your you know younger people might over, might see it and, and dive into it if you tell people to go out and buy a book they ain't going to do it but if you leave it around this is the kind of book where you pick up and you just cannot put it down i've got four um, college student interns working here at the nutrition institute and I have to call them attention back to work. I was saying, oh, no, we can read this book later. You, know, you can look at it when we're out tabling and killing time and stuff. But, Peter, it's a fabulous book. Thank you. Well, thank you, Rob, very much. I enjoyed talking to you. Yes, it's been an honor to speak with you and uh, learn more about what we can do to slow down uh, climate change and what we can also do to reduce pollution. Uh, climate change is carbon pollution, and we need to... You know, do whatever we can. It's not just one priority of problem. It's this whole mindset, as Peter made up for us, that, you know, we have to look for ways to reduce polluting uh, the habitat that we live in, the earth that we live in. Uh, Peter, thanks. You're Uh, you're welcome, Rob. Thank you. Yeah. Um, And safe voyages to you going forward. It's just been great. Uh, For those who are listening, uh, thank you for listening to another episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Uh, I hope you all will take care of yourselves and take some time to take care of the planet. Thank you.
1: Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then.